0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're talking with Karida Svitch about her new book, The Hour of All Things and Other Plays, published by Intellect Books. Uh, I guess I guess, perhaps not uh, a super new book, but it is your, your latest collection of plays, right?
1: Uh, it is, and it's distributed in the U.S. Uh, by the University of Chicago Press.
0: Great, fantastic. I really enjoyed this collection. Thank you. Uh, One of the things you write in the introduction is you say every time you are about to make a work of art, you are faced with everything you have done before and everything that has been done before by others. How do you feel that the plays collected in this volume are in conversation with your previous work?
1: Oh, wow. Um, Let me see. (laughs) Uh, I've done a collection for intellect the year before this book came out. So I think what happened is that that first collection. First of all, uh, the relationship uh, going through that copy editing process with intellect was really uh, positive and enthusiastic um, on their end. Uh, And, you know, as soon as we finished that first collection, which was Jarman, all this maddening beauty, and other plays, and that's a collection of three pieces. I suddenly felt like, well, there's a bigger story here, maybe. Uh, in other words, there's a play in that first collection called The Orphan Sea that directly influences the plays in this collection. So, and I already had written the four plays that are in this book. Uh, and so I was like, ah, oh, if only <laughs> I had another volume. <laughs> and so we started talking and and they were like oh we would love to do another another book with you. So so it grew out of the first book um The Orphan Sea and the first book is a play that looks at migration and uh border crossings and Google Earth and cyberspace and um homecoming through the lens of the Odysseus and Penelope myth, and but written in a very loose way. Uh, and it's a very expansive. It's written in, it's basically about uh, 80 poems and very short, except for other sections that are longer. There's some songs in it. There's some video in it, or the idea of having video in it. Um, and it's kind of a collection that's sort of just a mosaic uh, and that sort of mosaic structure is something I've always been interested in as a writer for the stage and, and looking at the page in a very specific way as an invitation for uh, future collaborators. Uh, and I had, when I had written The Hour of All Things, uh, I felt that it was the beginning maybe of a new chapter, but a kind of a refining of ideas and themes that I've been interested in for a long time. So, and it's sort of doing it in a different way and kind of dealing with the audience more directly and and really exploring that audience uh, to text, to perform a relationship. Uh, and so, so yeah, they, it, they came out of each other and also, I think, Coming, thinking long and hard about uh, structural forces in capitalist societies around the making of art, um, maybe more its dissemination and reception, and and wanting to build a volume that would, in its own little grain of sand way, uh, rupture that uh, ideas around what is possible and what is not possible in playwriting. Um, so, yeah, so I saw it as sort of an offering, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of another uh, quote that I have written down from your introduction, where you say, this thing we have between us, which we sometimes call theater, has no value in monetary terms, which I, I get the sense that that's part of uh, what attracts you to theater, is it's, uh, it's, it's worthlessness in, in, the, in the value systems of the capitalist market.
1: Uh, For sure. I mean, I think that it's always a struggle when you're an artist that is uh, living in uh, uh, capitalism, even when capitalism is uh, exposing itself as it is doing now, uh, in a very dire way, uh, who's affected most deeply and cuts right to the bone, right. So I think that, but I think always dealing with the market, I mean, you can't ignore that it exists. You know what I mean? I think that it's sort of foolhardy, as a playwright, to think, "Well, I'm just going to write stuff, and it's just going to be for me." And uh, and I think a, a part of the a pure impulse around writing plays comes from that. Uh, but then you also have to realize, you know, where are you in the world, and and how do you gonna how are you gonna speak to have a conversation with negotiate. Uh, being in structures that are demanding sometimes something different from you sometimes uh, expectations around form or structure that are in the field itself. Um, Yeah, and so I just think it's, uh, it's a it's a high wire act, I think. (laughs) And you just have to write it very carefully. Because I think on the one hand, if you're obsessed with the idea of the market, Uh, who knows, you may not be writing necessarily what may be the purest uh, version that you could do. You also may not be moving the field forward. And I think that one of the things about being a playwright is that you're responsible, I think, for every time you make something, to think about how it's moving the field forward. And that may be having a deep conversation with the past, right? So it's not always about... Uh, you know, being astonishingly avant-garde or, or any of that, it, it just may have, it may have to do with just where why, you know, that question that dramaturgs always ask is why this play now? Uh, and I'm like, sometimes as a writer, you're asking yourself that question. Like, why this play now? It may be that you just need to write it. Uh, and it comes from a very personal impulse. And then also it may be like, oh, well, I'm seeing something in the field and a theater, uh, and then the larger field of the world, and you want to engage with that and interact with that. So so it comes up both ways. And I also think it has to do with how you view your stance as a playwright in regards to uh, resistance. uh, And that resistance is a is an active process.
0: Yeah, a a lot of the plays, I would say, you know, in different ways, all of the plays in this volume deal with uh, political themes and from a sort of oppositional uh, standpoint, oppositional to the kind of mainstream, uh, you know, cultural, political, economic formations of our of our country and our world. Um, Why do you feel that theater is a particularly or maybe a better way to phrase the question is, do you feel that theater is a particularly effective medium to engage these political questions?
1: I think because it's public, uh, I think because it's about civic engagement, uh, even online, right? So we're talking a lot about digital theater right now, uh, given the the current state of, of all <laughs> and theaters being shut down, et etc. Uh, but I still think that notion of you're putting something in the air, and you're asking uh, a live audience, or even a live chat audience, or even a streaming audience, <laughs> pretending that they're live, Uh, to consider uh, what their role is as citizens. Um, I think that that's a very active relationship and it becomes a political relationship, Uh, even if you're writing uh, something that is uh, perhaps on the surface avowedly, uh, seemingly apolitical.
0: Yeah, a lot of your plays... um... Seem and I, I, I want to. I wish I could come up with a better word for this, but seems sort of like uh incomplete without collaborators in the sense that there are plays where you don't even assign lines to particular characters, you say the ensemble that creates this performance can kind of divide up the 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 dialogue as they see fit. Do you feel that that has political implications for you?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, that working with the with open drama. Uh, as a form is something that I started to do. Actually, I started to do it (laughs) when I first started writing plays like way back. I think when I was in high school Um, and I and then I was told that that's that place didn't look like that. So I was like, oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) And I read a lot of plays and I was like, oh, I guess they don't look like that. Um, But it was funny. It was sort of like uh, around 20, around 2013. I will say I kind of had a hankering to re-explore that form. Uh, and also, you know, seeing, reading a lot of, of writers who work this way, like Jelinek and Mueller, obviously, um, but even Simon Stevens uh, in the English language world, uh, to name just three. Uh, Martin Krimp, obviously, Attempts on Our Life, which is a landmark play uh, as well. Uh, And so I just I was like, oh, I I've I've been aching to kind of push against uh, a prescriptive, authorial, authoritative notion of the author, Um, and and kind of trying to bend that in a different way. Um, And and I was, I mean, and I also this also comes from a casting sitting in on a lot of casting sessions and also often as a writer you're asked by a theater company or the casting director to do a casting breakdown right so who's in your play can you send us the thing and and I just kept getting increasingly frustrated with the limitations of that uh, I know so many actors, I know so many actors who have, don't have work um, and uh, brilliant, brilliant people. And, uh, you know, and so often the stories are, what are you going in for? And they'll be like, well, there's this role and it, and it needs to be this. And so I go to the audition and it's like, you know, a hundred people that look just like me or whatever, you know, and I was just like, "Oh, that's so boring. You know, I just like, I feel so bad. And I just think in a weird way, you know, for me, it has to do with, Whose imaginations are in the room, what kind of skill sets are in the room? uh how are those people gonna play together uh and so i I thought, well, how can I create something at least for me, you know from my own process that liberates and that allows more people in and basically has to do with a dem- democratic idea right you know it's like if we think theater is a democratic space, um it's a model of democracy uh and conflict resolution, especially in the rehearsal room, uh, then, then surely there's a different way to structure and, and, and to shape plays um, on the page that allow for that democracy to occur so that it's the casting is equitable so that um, you're not limiting and you're not excluding every time you're putting down, uh, you know, role and character and figure so so i think it stems from a lot of those impulses sort of circling around various all those sort of various impulses around wanting to explore open drama as a democratic form and also for me just as a maker of things it's so exciting to be able to uh be part of different coll- kinds of collaboration so I think I think. also the thing I was coming up against as a writer was, you know, going to rehearsal process and, and let's say it's the fourth or fifth production of the play and and sort of knowing, oh, I sort of know what it's sort of going to look like, you know, or mm-hmm. sound like. And I was getting bored by that. I was just like, I, you know, I don't want to... I want to be surprised i just want to be like oh i don't know what's going to happen i don't know how they're going to approach it like this could be because for me as a practitioner that's a much more alive you know this form is about liveness to a certain degree the liveness also occurs in the process right so in the room so i feel like um i wanted to be in rooms where uh I, I didn't know what to expect. And so so I thought, well, then, then it's sort of, I have to go backwards, right? I have to, so I also have to make it, I have to lay something down because I'm still a writer. So I have to lay something down on the page that allows for that occur, to occur. So it, it comes also from that impulse.
0: Yeah, that, that reminds me of something um, I heard Charles Mee say once when he was talking about his plays, which often are very spare in terms of how they describe staging. And he said that why, part of why he does that and part of why he, you know, doesn't talk a lot in rehearsal is that he thinks that the reason Shakespeare always gets such good productions is that he's been dead for 400 years.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's probably true. I mean, it's also, I think it's weird. I, I, am I'm, I'm actually very hands-on in rehearsal if I'm collaborating with folks, but I'm, I'm hands on the sense of like, you know, um, God, I wonder what the sound's going to do. Can we explore the sound design or like, I really love dealing with the uh, elements in the room. Uh, and you know, once the note, I feel like the act of writing is an act of notation. Uh, once that notation is there. Uh, the other layers of performance, uh, collaboration. Um, I love just jamming with a bunch of people. It's like being in a band, you know, I just love jamming with a bunch of artists and and figuring out how we're gonna approach this. Uh, So I I love being part of that conversation. And and less around, uh, perhaps around, uh, this is how you do the thing. But more like, oh, how are all these creative people going to think of something together? So, so I love being in that in that uh, mode as a practitioner.
0: Yeah, um, that's great. I, I'd love to talk about the the play, The Hour of All Things, which is the title play in this collection. And uh, you know, you t- you were talking a, a couple of minutes ago about this idea of trying to write uh, characters that that could be that aren't you know tied down to one particular demographic and this play there's is it has one speaker named nick who we learn almost no demographic information about um did you feel like that was that was risky at all do you feel like that i mean it, it seems to me like i i'm very sympathetic to this uh idea of trying to write very capaciously in terms of who can play your characters but uh do you feel that there's a there's a risk in doing that in terms of um you know, people might think that you're suggesting that these differences don't matter, or or something like that.
1: Right. I totally get where you're coming from. I, uh, you know, for me, uh, I think in the in the hour of all things, in this play in particular, uh, there are clues in the in the text around who this character is. Right. So. Pretty much feels like they're probably middle class. <laughs> if, you know, there's yeah, something, yeah. there's some like uh, uh, textures in the writing, um, what they're buying at the supermarket. You know, there's a there's hints yeah. around class, especially around this character. Also, the fact that they um, don't regularly take part in sort of. Uh, protest actions, but did once, you know, there's, there's stuff around the backstory of this character that, that suggests certain things about who they might be. Um, In terms of inflecting them in other ways, I'm interested in how actors, an actor coming into us to that role, uh, inflects the material. Depending on what their life experience is and who they are and how they are perceived in the world, um, and so, and I and if it troubles the the clues and codes that are in that in that particular piece, I'm interested in those tensions. so so for me, it's um, I mean, it's weird. I think this started also because I was doing a translation for Oregon Shakespeare festivals, play on, uh, play on Shakespeare project. Um, And so we were, I was doing Henry VIII, uh, which is a lesser known uh, Shakespeare play, uh, probably co-written with uh, Fletcher. And we were having workshops of it. And um, the casting was you know, uh, we were—they were like, "We'll just get ten actors." And and I think outside, I think of Henry and Catherine of Aragon. Most of the other roles were cast with whoever was in the room that they could bring, and they were amazing performers. You know, and so, and and I think that often happens, that tends to happen a lot when people stage Shakespeare, uh, at least uh, in modern, modern and contemporary uh, stagings um, this notion of, oh, you know, it's, it's both color conscious, but it's also maybe gender neutral. Um, How do you address that? And I think some plays uh, of Shakespeare's uh, allow for for that to happen more readily than others, right? So, um, so I just became, I became intrigued also about this idea of like, oh, if I hear that actor, in that role, suddenly I'm thinking about that role really differently because of who they are in the world. So, so, uh, so it comes from that uh, impulse more than anything, uh, of wanting to see the inflections of that operate on the text. Uh, this was also true of um, Carol Churchill's play Love and Information, right, that is a series of, of, of scenic prompts um, that can be cast with an ensemble, uh, and seeing that the production that came to New York um, with New York Theatre Workshop um, also was part of that, so was sort of in line with. The, I started to see how text could be inflected differently. Um, yeah, so it becomes really interesting, and then it makes you rethink about like, oh, who is that person in the world? Why? You know just from an audience perspective so so i'm interested in those tensions and i think that in the hour of all things they're they're they can be more pronounced depending on who's playing that role
0: yeah um one thing that it definitely seems to be true of this nick character like you mentioned is that they they seem to be sort of broadly sympathetic to progressive ideals or the ideals of the left but are not politically active which <laughs> Also seems to describe pretty well most theater goers, at least in New York, in the in the sort of big institutional theaters. Did you uh, intentionally kind of want to want to hold up a mirror to the theater going audience and and kind of talk to them about their own uh, tendency towards political complacency?
1: Uh, in part, I mean, I never know who's going to be in the audience. You know, uh, right. uh, I like to think. <laughs> <laughs> that the audience is wide ranging, uh, but, you know, uh, uh, often not uh, just because of, of access, really uh, affordable ticket prices, not affordable ticket prices, uh, even at an off, even off of Broadway. Uh, and, and, you know, and also who generally goes to the theater, there's the uh, outside of, of Broadway, uh, which is of course tourist, uh, driven to a large degree sort of as a cultural product. Um, uh, who tends to go to an off, off Broadway house or an off Broadway house tend to be other theater goers that, you know, uh, and then you start looking at who's in the room. Right. So, so yeah, I think maybe I was thinking about the audience. Um, I, you know, I don't often write about the middle class. Uh, I think I have three plays, (laughs) where I write about the middle class, it, uh, Instructions for Breathing, which is a play that I wrote in 2007 that is a title of another collection of mine with Siegel books. Um, this play. <laughs> and uh, a new play that I've just written, actually. And and it's sort of... So I, I actually tend not to... Uh, not that I'm not interested in middle class. It's just sort of an interesting... I think there are a lot of plays written about the middle class, you know, so I think it's my reaction yeah. to sort of not to not go there. Um I get like tired of seeing uh plays about one uh fiscal economic uh demographic. So constantly. Uh so yeah. so yeah, so I think but but you know, I also wanted a character in this one that was like a little bit or you know, sort of ordinary, you know, someone who is uh you might pass them by on the street and not think much of them kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, someone that fades into the background a little bit. Um, uh, and so so yeah, so for for various, for whatever reason, you know. Um, and so yeah, so I was interested in kind of poking at that a little bit. Uh, and I thought, Oh, is this a character that an, like, an imagined audience in my head? Might relate to how do you gain their comfort level right and so and I don't often think about comfort level when i'm writing, but uh, but I think in this piece I was I think because of the form of it it's direct address um, it should feel like hey, I'm telling you a story um, and so so I wanted something that had a um, that felt from the from the beginning at least uh, a notion of like like when we did this play in New York, uh, in a shorter version of it, we talked a lot. Of, it, we didn't end up doing this eventually, but, but in the earliest previews, we tried this, and I, I still like this idea that Nick came from the audience, right? She was just sitting in the audience. <laughs> and so she mm-hmm. got up, and then she started <laughs> talking. And we were like, oh, okay. So there was this already this idea that, that she's part of the audience body. Um, and obviously you know, not representative of, uh, but one voice in that body that, that might mimic or echo other voices in that body.
0: Yeah. One, one scene, I hope I'm not spoiling too much of the plot, but one scene in this play that I really loved was that she goes to this protest and suddenly finds herself surrounded by, you know, anarchists and and radicals. And she suddenly feels a, a bit out of place and then there's a wave of tear gas that sort of washes over the cloud, the crowd, uh, which which I feel like this is often lost in discussions of sort of uh, the perceived apolitical nature of a lot of Americans. But, you know, the police in America actually are quite brutal to protesters, much more so than in you know other countries, whether it's, you know, France or, or England, certainly not the most brutal in the world, but but uh, but they they will you know, beat people and tear gas people and violently arrest, you know, people of all, of all ages. And was that part of why, what you were kind of exploring in the the play, this sort of the danger of solidarity?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's a, it's a tactic, right? So, so you're protesting peacefully and then, uh, even amongst anarchists <laughs> as Nick finds out <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, as she's walking uh, and, and marching um, and kind of like, Oh, what did I get myself into? Um, and, but then, but then, yeah, like how did the idea of resistance? So, so how is resistance resistance uh, tamed um, are through acts of, are through acts of brutality.
0: Yeah. Um, I'd love to move on to the play The Breath of Stars. Uh, this play seems like a particularly relevant play to discuss now, given that uh, so much of it deals with the internet and social media. What to you is interesting about uh, these, these topics? I mean, obviously, they're, they're ubiquitous in our world, but, um, but you've engaged with them, I would say, more deeply than perhaps any other modern playwright I know.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm obsessed, I think, around the year 2000, right, when sort of the internet, <laughs> it, you know, it was rearing its head. Um, I start. I wrote a play called Steal Backlight from the virtual. Um, and, and I started to write a series of plays that dealt with uh, disembodiment, basically, right. So, uh, avatars and disembodied selves, and mediation, and what does that mean to, to being alive, or or how do you sort of enact different versions of yourself? So my play, If a on Falls on the Young Shell that Once was, was Once Her Heart, is part of that series of plays, even though it's it's shot through the lens of a Greek, of an ancient Greek story, and reaction to Euripides. Uh, and then there are a couple of hidden plays of mine. I mean, they're they're in print, but they're hidden. They I mean, they didn't get produced. So, uh, Transmission Five Hundred uh, is exploring text language, and you know, so I, it's something that I've always just been really. Once the vocabulary manifests, right? So I think that one of the things that artists do is they respond to what are the tools? What are the new tools that we have in the world? And, uh, and I was eager to play with them and also because it's different kinds of languages, uh, of enactment. Uh, and so, so if you're, you're, you're a writer of enactment, then, then, you know, that, that field is available to you. Uh, when I wrote the breath of stars, um, that was also, it's sort of funny. I wrote that play, the initial draft of that play, Um, kind of as a dare to myself, uh, I've been writing a series of very, and quite intentionally so very, uh, grounded, um, realistic plays in a kind of very specific American tradition, uh, harking back to Williams and Miller and, and those kinds of, uh, worlds. Um, and I was just, I was coming kind of at the end of that writing writing so those were like four plays that were a quartet and i and i was like ah oh, oh i want to do something else <laughs> and mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and i've always been interested in the idea maybe from like an early collaboration i did with 15 writers uh around the country uh, uh after 911 i did a collaboration called return to the upright position that i instigated um and we wrote we wrote that whole thing via email, uh, about 15 writers, uh, and I was the curator and editor uh, and writer on that project. And uh, and I also said, as the instigator of that particular project, that we could use any kind of form of writing. Um, and so I just remember sitting down and going, I miss... <laughs> <laughs> I miss that. I miss that idea of correspondence. This idea of how things float through the float through the virtual space. um You send a te- you know you send a text or you send an email or you send something and it sort of floats and it lives somewhere and we don't know where that where is exactly. Although we'd have to like do the science and the sort of technology to find out. But there's also the where that lives in your imagination. Um, how you think that other person is going to respond, and then in social media with with uh, Skype, sort of early versions, for sort of Skype and FaceTime and so forth, where you can see the person, but you also can't touch them. You know, so there's so I've just been fascinated with, this, with the realm of the visible and invisible that that cyberspace allows you to explore on a fil- philosophical level, actually. Uh, and I always think that theater is a philosophical medium. Uh, as well as being a civic one, so so i um, I sort of became obsessed with that idea of correspondence. and and also because I think that cyberspace uh, and exploring virtual landscapes and the language of those landscapes um, also have inherently about them uh, the notion of loss and warning uh and theater of course is also essentially about loss and mourning (laughs) right if we, you know these are spaces that have been inhabited before right if we think of the theater space as a physical space but also the history of theater right so if you're writing something you're also part of you're on you're sort of writing on the bed of like hundreds and thousands of other writers and makers who have made things so you're always dealing with the haunted space of theater. Uh, and so I was just like, oh, I really want to play with a text that completely hyperlinks in its dramaturgy. Um, and so we're just kind of floating through it uh, with this kind of thread of a narrative between Ariel and Prospero. So in that writing process, I started to think about The Tempest a lot. Uh, and it was a commission from Carthage College. And they knew my work with 12 Ophelias and with Iphigenia on Falls, especially. And so they were like, it would be great to sort of for your piece to live in the realm of in response to a classical work. Um, and I'd always I'd always wanted to engage with a tempest for many reasons, partly of them being what it, what that. Uh, play explores in terms of colonialism so um and i and i thought oh this might be an interesting way to deal with the tempest as a kind of a text that's already haunting theater to begin with uh and that and i feel like the tempest is so much about theater (laughs) it's so much about theater making um and so and what is the role of the magician artist and you know all that so i i kind of uh threw myself into that so yeah but I but I, I've I'm, always been fascinated by hyperlink narrative and and even from the folks that have been doing in the world of fiction right so so I, I felt like it was time to go back into that realm as a writer um because I still feel it's a weirdly unexplored and maybe now that we're fully digital or seemingly fully digital maybe it'll be really explored for real but i feel like it's still a realm that that offers a space for i hate using the word innovation but um but a, a space to learn new things as a maker and also as a viewer and as a reader um yeah and i and so i think that's exciting because i think art is about re um and and it allows us to re-see re-think. Uh, what a what what an art piece can be, and also using the vocabulary. I mean, that is also a new vernacular, right? So I think if we're thinking as writers, as ourselves as writers, as being stewards of language, uh, I think dipping into what the what the vernacular is, or, or what the many vernaculars are, um, is crucial. You know, even if at some point we decide to reject them, right, or, or say that's not for me. Uh I think it's worth exploring. Uh it gives you different tools to to work with as a writer.
0: Have you explored the possibility of adapting any of your works to be performed via Zoom or something during this time when the theaters are closed for the indefinite future?
1: Yeah, I am uh I'm actually talking to a theater company right now in San Francisco about this because I mean several things have happened, right? I'm, on top of everything, but I had a commission to do a project, uh, with a theater company called Ubuntu in San Francisco, and we were going to go up in November <clears throat> live <laughs> on stage. I don't think that's mm-hmm. going to happen. So, um, so we, so I, I suggest I actually reached out to them. And I said, I think I want to reconceive the piece for, a digital platform be it zoom or or if we find a different one uh but that one seems to be the most ubiquitous at the moment i'm also i'm fascinated what by what people are doing in that environment um uh theatrically uh because it is a, a kind of interesting hybrid between live like not ex- it's not a film you know and it's but it's something else it's this hybrid thing and so now, of course i've always been interested in hybridity and so i and also there's something very immediate about that form, um, that platform. You know, it's, it's literally right in your lap, right? So, so that's a different relationship to the audience, the potential audience. And so I'm fascinated by that. And um, so I think we are going to have a meeting on Monday, and I think we are going to go in that direction. And I'm excited to rethink a piece that I originally thought was going to be live, but rethink it entirely uh for this for this new kind of quote environment that we're in Um uh, there's also a piece of mine called better maybe which i wrote for play at home uh as a commission from the Fornes institute um you know and the remit of that project is um uh, you know they commissioned writers to write uh no more than 10 minutes but uh short pieces uh that somebody could do in their home space um and you don't know like you don't know then who your players are. Right. So, so uh, which is fun. Uh, And I love this idea of giving the play to the audience, you know, I've always been interested in that notion. And so, uh, but then what's happened because of that play is that it's had, um, it had a Facebook live uh, performance slash reading with Wilbury theater group uh, two weeks ago. It had another one last week with Ubuntu, but completely on Zoom where we could see the audience. Uh, uh, It's going to have another one tonight, actually, in Wyoming with Relative Theatrics, uh, also on Zoom platform. But I think it's going to be hosted on uh, uh, Beam to YouTube. Uh, Yeah, so, and then I'm talking to another theater company where we're actually going to blow it up and have like maybe 50 people in it and it's going to be there's going to be choreography and but also kind of like in zoom land uh so yeah so i'm like i'm all in keeping busy i'm all in also (laughs) because it's just a new it's a new way of thinking about form so i'm excited by that
0: Yeah. Wow. That's great. I'll I'll certainly be on the lookout for all of that uh, coming up in the next few uh, months. Um, I'd love to talk about the play Upon the Fragile Shore, the third play in this volume, which takes place simultaneously in five different regions throughout the globe. Um, Was it challenging for you to try to approach writing about these communities that are so distant from your own?
1: Um, uh, I think, I think Naomi Wallace and I were talking about this some years ago about the responsibility of, of uh, and the necessity of writing outside your own skin, <laughs> uh, your own skin, your own station, your own class, your own race, you like know, everything, you know, gender like, uh, that, that was writers. That's one of our jobs. And it's also part of the ethical responsibility around um, the ac- acts of empathy, teaching acts of em- empathy, uh, and so we're we're the first guinea pigs in that process, in the writing process. So, I, when I wrote "Upon the Fragile Shore," one of the things about that piece is that I'd never written ever, actually, um, a piece that was set uh, historically in a very specific time frame. So. Mm the remit that I gave myself with that play was that I was going to write uh, I wanted to write something that happened uh, in different parts of the world at once uh, I also wanted to it's not quite living newspaper but it's sort of a nod to living newspaper kind of mode of writing so uh, I gave myself a very strict timeline in terms of from this month to this to this month uh, as I was living it, happening in real time, responding to the news, right? Responding to, but wanting to craft something that, that, co, you know, that the act of coexistence was clear on the page um, on some level. so that we're we're dipping into these stories uh, with an understanding that they're all happening at the same time, within the same sort of time period. Uh, and wanting to deal with geopolitics uh terrorism um and uh acts of disappearance, I think the notion which happens in news cycles where a story takes precedent uh you know in people's minds or on the news on the news cycle, and then it it sort of disappears right it, it kind of like mm-hmm. if it doesn't have traction. <laughs> in the crudest sense, right? Uh, oh well, it's on to the next story. Um, and of course, that's not true, right? That story is still happening, right? So, so I was interested in that idea of like, how do we process um, the real things that are really happening, and how do how do we how do we contend with um, the loss, the the unfinished nature of those stories. Uh, from a receptive point of view um and then I was really interested in the idea of the the disappearing plane, and so when that happened and 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 the unsolvable nature of that story and the massive amounts of grief uh but the inability to kind of touch the body and locate those bodies um And I thought, oh, that's also similar to how how certain stories um, are, we can't touch them, we can't locate those bodies. So we think, perhaps, and I'm using the we in a very contentious way, but how a a receiver of those stories um, uh, thinks they're gone or they're out of view. So it has to do with seeing and not seeing, really. You know, there's Sarah Centelli's uh, notion of where do we look when we look as viewers and pro- as a political body and what do we see and what do we choose not to see. Um, and so I was I wanted to explore that on the page and hopefully on the stage. And, and, and also within those stories, uh, enact tales of, that feel like documents. So some of them are inspired by real documents for, that I did from research and some are invented. Um, but, but like speaking from somebody who knew someone who died at the Boston marathon or, you know, so this notion of how do we carry, how can we live alongside, um, uh, someone else's path, right? And I've always been interested in, in this, the philosophical idea of the beside-ness. How do we live beside, yeah. alongside someone? Um, uh, what is what is that, the regard toward this other person um, and their life experience and what they're going through? Uh, the story inside of Upon the Fragile Shore about uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, uh, is one that i've always wanted to write about, so i it you know once I started to do the map of the play in terms of the different continents and locations, then I was like, Oh, you know nobody's talking about this t- nobody's talking about this uh and it felt like you know it's never on the news and it's never in the headline you know uh mm-hmm. and I just thought, well here's an interesting case of an ongoing struggle that for who knows what reason uh it just doesn't make the headlines, right you know it just kind of slips away, um but it's still there, yeah so so yes, and I then of course, then through that, environmental concerns, right, so who owns the water, where's the water coming from, that's gonna be the next resource that's gonna be depleted, so how are we gonna and contest it right so how how are how are different continents gonna deal with that you know so there so through that looking at the idea of the fragile, um, that we all live on fragile shores, but some some citizens in the world, those shores are much more fragile than others uh, from an emotional level, from an environmental level, uh, uh, and exponentially to that. Uh, And through that, uh, when I was working on The Way of Water, which is a play that preceded this play, probably by by four plays in between but sort of emotionally definitely preceded this play uh which the way of water said of the aftermath of the Deepwater horizon disaster and so i was already thinking about um you know fragility and shores and eroding coastlines and uh rising sea levels and uh damage ecological damage um uh, infiltrating uh body systems and systems of of ways of living so so all that was sort of swirling about in the in the construction of upon the fragile shore uh, so uh centrally a big challenge to myself to write something that was grounded in the real uh which i don't mm-hmm. uh usually do uh, uh, <laughs> I do it sometimes in a veiled way um, <laughs> uh but i I wanted to kind of unveil it in my writing uh, and expose it.
0: Yeah, that that idea of unveiling seems to be maybe one of the things that connects all these plays together. Is I, I feel like they do all have a real immediacy and and sort of uh, intimacy to them in that in that way. Um, and and a, another thing that connects them, like you just mentioned, is the the use of uh, environmental themes or the engagement with environmental themes, which. Um, It's really hard to do. It's hard to make environmental catastrophe, uh, you know, uh, something on on the stage. Um, Much more so, I would say, than, you know, uh, sexism, for example, is about the relationships between people. But environmental collapse is about the relationships between people and the environment. Um, How have you dealt with those kind of formal difficulties of, of grappling with environmental themes in your work? And how has that changed over, over time for you? Right.
1: Uh, well, one of my first plays like ever, like tr- a real play, like not the sketches or, mm-hmm. uh, I wrote a play called waterfall when I was in uh, college that then won a contest and got done and stuff like that. And full, it was my first full length, um, was a play that was set next to, um, uh, the a, a family drama, a dysfunctional family play. Um, comic sort of darkly comic uh set next to a toxic landfill uh and so 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 even then (laughs) Mm -hmm. i was i was uh, you know and i think at that time i wasn't conscious of it i think i was just sort of like working on impulse but also fascinated by the idea of like if you were living next to a toxic landfill how does it impact your life right so um and so then that's, that's sort of been subterranean, I think, in my work since then, uh, sometimes more prominent than in other cases. I went through a long period of my writing where uh, the work was, was kind of about uh, characters uh, divorced from their natural environment, right? So, you know, uh, plays that were looking at people who are, who are consciously Uh, disconnected from the natural world. Uh, And I think then through the years, I was just kind of like, I'm making to uh, make plays again that are not about that disconnection, but about uh, finding a connection back to the natural world. So, uh, and then, you know, I've been tracking sort of on a, totally, I'm not a scientist, uh, but, but tracking sort of climate change for a long time. And so thinking about more and more about how do we, as writers, I mean, part of what we do is we're recording time and we're recording the the world as we see it, uh, to some degree, even if we say it's another world, um, uh, like playing a transformative trick with the audience, but I, but I feel like the, you write what's happening. Right. So, and I feel like there are a lot of, um, I'm actually surprised that more people, I mean, I think they're starting to, but more people aren't writing, <laughs> you know, uh, plays that are kind of just saying, Oh, well, this is the world we're in, you know? And, and I think the, the comparison that I sometimes make when I'm talking to students about this is, um, you know, you can't read Jane Austen without thinking about industrialization, right? Like, the, the backdrop of those stories is industrialization. So you can't sort of write stuff now without knowing that the backdrop that you're in is, <laughs> you know, the world collapsing and yeah. like rising sea levels. And, you know, that's all, like, a thing. It's not science fiction now anymore, right? So, um, So I think the challenge around writing work where you're forefronting the relationship to humans in the natural world uh, and and the illusions around that. So sometimes characters that are like, no, I don't want to be in concert with uh, the earth and the water and the animals and trees and plants and so forth is that the challenge can be, I think, to be preachy right so hi audience i'm going to give you a lecture on climate change uh, um, which i think has its purposes uh uh for me uh, as an audience member i think you know one of the reasons when people write is that you're writing also for yourself as an audience right you're going like what would i like to see and i'm like i'm not so keen on (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> going to the theater and yeah. like having somebody watch me. So I, so I was like, oh, how can I craft something else? And I think that well, one of the ways is to create a story, situation, character, situation, uh, dramatic situation that where an audience goes, oh, that could be me, right? Uh, the identification mm-hmm. thing, right? So you, so you try to craft something that's emotionally resonant, so that then the audience can be in a space where they're if they're not already thinking about uh, the world we're in uh if they're in denial about that uh then then maybe they'll be awakened right so you're just trying to do some act of awakening um you're also trying to honor uh as a writer lives of folks that are in the front lines uh, uh, of of environmental work uh uh from the from the from the I uh, the point of view, I think, of of uh, aftermath, uh, from the point of view of working working in that field. So I just wrote a play called Ushuaia Blue, which was going to have a premiere this summer. But of course, that's not happening, um, uh, which was based on, uh, inspired by, I should say, interviews with uh, polar marine biologist James McClintock, who's spent the last sort of 30 odd years of his uh research uh life in Antarctica uh and studying you know uh, the marine life there um uh, uh, but then also being at that moment where i mean he, I, when i talked to him for the interviews where he said i was at that i was you know down in the ice and i heard that f- first crack right and you and you're kind of like oh and started to see and literally started to see the landscape change like you know, up close, like not a, there's no filter, like it's really happening right in front of him. And I was like, Oh, my God, this is amazing, right? You know, like, somebody who's actually out the front line of that yeah. and, and witnessing and then trying to figure out like he said to me, um, when that started happening, you know, he does a lot of, he's on the lecture circuit, and he talks about his research in uh, biology, but he said, I, he started to include as part of his lectures, uh, calls to awareness around climate change and awareness about what we can do and uh, that there's little time left you know all of that you know so I so I felt like oh so sometimes I want to write from that position too so and, and that's a way also hopefully you know I don't know I you can't predict audiences but hopefully a way of engaging human beings to decenter themselves uh, and to think about uh, how we're how we're all in this together and I mean that in the sense of we're like we are living with in harmony with or not harmoniously with the planet. Uh, and I think we've been living not harmoniously with the planet for a very long time. So, uh, and so I think that through that, my interest in climate grief, uh, 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 this kind of weight on the soul around complicit behaviors, uh, around basically destroying, uh, uh, the one planet that we're on. Right. So, um, so yeah, so I'm I'm interested in telling those stories. I mean, that that is the story that we're all living, uh, and that is the backdrop that we're in. And it's not a it's not a green room backdrop. It's a real backdrop. <laughs> so yeah, so I feel right. like the task is always how to figure out as a dramatist to walk those lines of, you know, you know, is it enemy of the people? Right? Is it like Ibsen? Is it like you know, the whistleblower who's trying to to tell everybody? Uh, and that story is certainly vital and, and important. Uh, who, get, who gets who listens? Who doesn't listen? And what compromises are made? And and how are those com- how are those compromises deadly? Uh, what what uh, truths get buried, et cetera? Uh, and then there's also the the trying to model maybe a new way of living, right? So I think that one of the things about drama that's powerful, dramatic writing is that you can actually model a new way, right? So you can you can have an audience come to see something or see it on the laptops or whatever they're doing and or listen to an audio play and think about like, oh, I could live like that. Like, you know, there's a way of, mm-hmm. without being high-handed about it, but sort of like, um, you know, you can you can model a new way of living your life, you know, and a, a, a more transformative and more healing and more, you know fill in the blank right so a more equitable and just way of, of of living your life and i think that one of the things that drama does as edward bond says is like drama is about uh writing what is a playwright is somebody who writes about a just society you're sort of you're exploring either justice or injustice and and environmental injustice unfortunately uh is rampant um so, and it is the backdrop that we live in. So I just feel like uh, honor bound in a way as a writer to not ignore that um, and have it be a fabric of my work. Uh, and sometimes, again, more forefronted and sometimes less so, but I think it's always there.
0: Yeah. in, in that connection, Awa de Luna is a really interesting play because I feel like the, this, it's a play that is set largely in a scrapyard which is a, a very interesting metaphor for contemporary Detroit where the play is set where you know these uh, there are still there's still auto parts made there the F150 is still made at the old River Rouge plant but uh but it is you know deindustrialization has hit that city hard and yet that city has in recent years you know in really interesting ways tried to remake itself and in that sense you know that the the idea of a scrapyard is is connected there where you're taking this old piece of industrial machinery and trying to see what else you can uh, you can make from it.
1: Yeah, well, Luna was a commission from Matrix Theater Company in Detroit. Uh, and so I had a residency with them and, and it started from an interview process. So I interviewed, oh my heavens, so many people, I, I, you know, all levels of society, artists, uh, elders, uh, at a senior center, uh, high school students, um, uh, people in their teen company, um, you know, people at the, uh, the sort of local government, um, particularly looking at a, a specific neighborhood in Detroit, which is the Latinx neighborhood. Uh, they've been going through a lot of rough, uh, you know, it was partly starting to be gentrified when I was there and, 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 you know, just dealing with, uh, that's where the theater company is located. Um, and so they were grappling with how to respond to their immediate community. And, and, and also, uh, one of the things I, they said to me when I started the commission process was that they felt like their audience space came from other neighborhoods in Detroit, but not that, that neighborhood, right? So the lo- right. the people that actually lived there weren't going to the theater <laughs> that was right there um, because maybe yeah. they felt it wasn't for them, right? You know, so so that was sort of interesting. They were like, oh, we want to make sure that uh, this place speaks in some way to our Latinx population, which in that in that particular section of Detroit is very mixed. So it's like, historically, it started as very Puerto Rican, uh, then Dominican, then Central American, and Mexican, you know, so... Um, uh, so there's a wide range, uh, of experiences, uh, mostly immigrant, but not all. Um, yeah. And so I'm and, and heavily Catholic, very Catholic, um, uh, church going, uh, communities. So, so I think I had a lot of my kind of writing desk when I was working on a de um, they had also asked me to write a play that was bilingual to some degree with not knowing if their actors could fully code switch in performance. So I, I sort of have to gauge that in the back of my brain of like, will we have actors who can. In fact, the first draft of that play was had much more Spanish in it. And then we were in production. Mm-hmm. It was a clearly um, the actor, you know, We had actors who just couldn't. Uh, Code which uh they were fluent enough in both in, in spanish to be able to go fluently from english to spanish quickly uh so i had to just devise different strategies around that but the scrapyard came from well i just saw a lot of them right so <laughs> i was like right. you know walking They're around detroit, detroit and driving around detroit and i was like oh, there's another scrapyard and another scrapyard and i just, and then i became really interested that was a metaphor uh uh, of kind of revitalization, like what do you do with the stuff that's left behind and uh, connecting that to like the urban, the urban gardening movement, you know, like thinking about like, what do you repurpose? What do you repurpose to sort of move forward? The, the, the melancholic side of that being, you know, industrial parts that are no longer, but how do you, you know, stuff that where people actually made their livelihood is now sort of less of a livelihood, but it's a livelihood, right? So, I also love the image of that. So just on a practical level, I thought, how do you do that on stage? I don't know. That'd be fascinating. <laughs> how are you going to mm-hmm. do these scenes? You know? And I was just like, I want to try them and see, like, it'd be so much fun. So I think that it gonna. because I think playwriting is also about like what could be fun. Right. So, uh, I thought, well, that's like an interesting challenge for a director and some actors and designers. Like, how are we going to do the scrapyard scene? Um, and then I and then became also uh, interested in the idea of indebtedness and inter, uh, writing play that was intergenerational, which I actually hadn't done in a very long time. And, uh, and I thought, oh, that's weird. I, it, and I, I became really obsessed with having a character that was in their hundreds, right? So somebody, a character is mm-hmm. very much an elder that's carrying sort of so much history with them. Um, uh, and then having a, a, a bird dog and what does that mean? And like having this sort of mythical creature on stage and yeah. And, and on that place, of course, because Detroit has gone through so much environmentally also looking at the, the environmental crises in Detroit, the multiple environmental crises in Detroit and environmental racism in Detroit, um, through a very specific lens of these stories of these neighbors. And so it's a story about neighbors, you know, and and um, some of whom are more indebted to each other uh, than others, um, but how we are all in good ways and in negative ways, uh, those process of uh, indebtedure are activated uh, in relationships and, you know, a landlord to a tenant and family member to another family member, um, acts of caring uh, and nurturing each other as a community uh and I really want to make sure that it was a play that uh that provided you know for for all the sort of uh dark stuff in it that offered uh, kind of a way a way forward uh something that felt that could lift the, lift the immediate community that was coming to that theater uh, lift them up uh, 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 spiritually. So so yeah. So but uh and also that's a unlike some of the other plays in this collection, um, very much like a play play in a way. I mean for me a play play. <laughs> Maybe yeah. not for other yeah. people yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, you know it has characters, relationships and situations, you know, dramatic situations. And, uh, and so and I and and I thought that would be a fun a fun uh, change of pace for me to go back into writing scenes and writing you know uh the kind of tense relationships uh that make drama happen Mm -hmm.
0: yeah that's something that i find so interesting about your work is that you have these very formally experimental plays and then you also have plays that like you say are play plays (laughs) where where there are you know there's characters and situation and it happens more or less in linear time and i i find that very interesting um, I'd love to talk about some of the influences that are uh, present in these plays. You mentioned Euripides in the introduction. What do you feel like you've learned from Euripides?
1: Everything, everything. I'm still learning from Euripides. I keep I can sit back answer. into there every once in a while, like in some of those beautiful translations that exist. And I just, uh, you know, the work is full of uh, dialectic uh, uh, strangeness, uh rupture um anger um a moral outrage in Euripides' work but but sneaky he's sneaky about it often uh I think that way I think in a way that catches us off guard as a reader and as an audience um uh he makes us makes us empathize with people who do really horrible things in ways that are that are confounding and beautiful um i love the structure of a lot of his plays the extant plays i mean uh, uh they're they're weird they're just weird <laughs> they're weird mm-hmm. plays i mean they're like they're not uh i think because you know of where they're happening historically they're they, he's starting to kind of break a lot of the stuff that Sophocles and Aeschylus were, were doing so he's already past that so it's sort of like breaking through the, a lot of the stuff that already was acknowledged right so just as a dramatist they're they move in unexpected ways uh even though they ostensibly keep what we recognize as as classical form uh with the use of the chorus and scenes and you know and the individuation of the chorus and his work, which I love, um, uh, that the chorus itself is dialectically sometimes opposed to each other. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, and they're just beautiful. They're roaring plays. They kind of go to the mat. Um, and they're relentless usually. Um, uh, so I'm attracted to that as a reader and as an artist and, um, uh, the leanness of those plays but also the expansiveness of them they're sort of um they're full of uh, gaps uh i think uh emotionally mm-hmm. and so so and i think that that feels very modern to me very contemporary and modern um and so i'm even though they're old 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 plays <laughs> uh, i think that's the genius of them so so i think that yeah i, I it's uh, and it's you know it's sacrifice right so it's it's their plays about sacrifice so i think that uh classical theater even even ruptured classical theater like euripides are dealing with what do we sacrifice who gets to, who gets to be sacrificed and why and like what are what are nations and, and countries leaders willing to sacrifice uh and why is that acceptable you know so i think that that the core of that is very strong and so i i just can't get enough of it
0: yeah that's fantastic i actually was um introduced to euripides work by christine evans who i took a playwriting class with in college who also was the first person to introduce me to your work
1: yeah and i published christine's uh plays with no passport press so uh, super fan of christine and we share a lot of the same interests yeah. and uh, you know, sometimes you meet people across the aisle and they're like, oh, another fellow, another fellow, <laughs> another fellow yeah. traveler. Uh, so, yeah, so it's not surprising.
0: And then um, you've also translated Lorca. Is that is that right?
1: Uh, all of Lorca's plays except for three. Three of the little yeah, ones, but... actually. One of the big ones. Well, one of the big ones, Mariana Pineda, which I've I keep avoiding for some reason. I don't know why. And then two of the little ones.
0: And he's wrote many more plays than I think most people realize. I feel like people, you know, think of the big, the, the big trilogy, but there are, there are others that are, you know, very strange and experimental. What, what have you learned from uh, Lorca's work?
1: Oh, Lorca, another one where I've learned everything. I I think because I've Mm -hmm. had the privilege and honor (laughs) to have translated so many of his plays and then 13 of the poems from Poet in New York. Um, and I started with the weird plays. I started with the impossible plays. So with As Five Years Pass, uh, Don Perlin Plin, The Public, um, you know, and so I, you know, and of course I knew the, the famous, I knew the three, you know, the big three, right? The Blood Wedding and Yerma and House of But we all know those, or these, well, I, maybe not everyone knows them. I, sometimes I run into... Uh-huh the like, yeah, not everybody. But uh but for, for for this case of theater history, a lot of people ostensibly know the big three. So um uh, but I started with the other one. So as a translator, so I think that I came at his work knowing the big three, knowing the rule trilogy and also going, Oh my God, but these plays, right? Like I, I, I sort of dove mm-hmm. into uh those experimental pieces with such vigor Um, what I've learned from Nordica, so many things, I mean, those, you know, all of the plays, including the big three, which I think sometimes people take for granted, um, Blood Wedding is a very strange play. (laughs) I just say, like, formally. Yeah,
0: they're not tidy, realist plays either.
1: No, I mean, you know, the moon starts speaking, and then the woodcutters burst out into kind of a song, you know, like... (laughs) It's whack. Yeah. Um, um it's a symbolist play, right? So so I think if you look at his work through the lens of symbolism, you're good, right? You're you sort of you're mm-hmm. in. You have the way in. Um <laughs> uh yeah, and I love symbolist drama. So uh, I think I was uh when I was in co- uh graduate school, one of my professors um uh, was the late uh Dayak, who was an amazing scholar of Czech theater uh but also a specialty in kind of symbolist drama so in french symbolist drama so so i got took a lot of classes with frenchak and uh, and you know anything he anything he could do to make us read more maeterling and more you know he would do and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and of course i got hooked right i was like oh and then of course i started to see the connection to lorca's work and um i think with lorca there's also a, so- a suppleness a kind of um sensual love, ritual, uh, nature to all of his plays. Um they're always they're they're almost all plays about uh I hate using blanket term, but to some degree they're they're almost all plays about power and opposition and who who mm-hmm. who is allowed to be free in the world and who isn't, right? So those are sent that's a central theme to all of the plays. So including Doña Rosita, uh which is a I think I think should be up there with one of the, well, the, you know, one of the big three, but often doesn't get yeah. acknowledged. Um, and the public, of course, was his, a play about being in the theater and who's in the audience. And, and why do we tell these stories uh, deep, a deep, uh, deeply fractured and. Uh, um, rebellious, re- rebellious play. So I think I'm attracted to his rebellion and his sensuality. Um the the fervor in the writing. Um and again a kind of fearlessness. Uh you know, because you do look at I remember when I finally translated Blood Wedding, because people kept asking me, when are you going to do Blood Wedding? I was like, ah, oh, you know. And I think I'd done bernard alba and I was working on Yerma. Uh and then suddenly it was like, you know, I should just I should just cave in and do it. Um, uh it's about time. But I already had translated I think 10 of his plays before I got to Blood Wedding. So I came at it as a translator really being inside his... I feel like as a translator you're inside another writer's brain. So I felt like I was had been inside his brain for a while. So so I came at the work uh, with that kind of uh, beautiful sort of connection to the material. Uh, and then finding myself in the middle of Blood Wedding going, this is the weirdest play ever. <laughs> and and kind of you know kind of being excited by that being excited by the the fact that it came from a news story it's sort of a came from a real life event I think the only well but not about two but I think in a different way the second of his plays to actually be drawn from a news item uh and and I was like this is amazing what he did like he took something that really excited him from, um, from a newspaper story, uh, about this, you know, this, uh, you know, killing and, and, um, I'm not giving anything away. Blood wedding is famous. Uh, so, so, you know, (laughs) uh, a woman who kind of goes off with the other guy and like, you know, a kind of classic triangle in a way, but it really did happen. Uh, and then, and then turning that into an investigation about, uh, repression and freedom and sexuality and uh, a woman's place in that, in that, uh, subject. Um, yeah. And just the role of desire itself. Right. So, so desire makes us act and, uh, in ways that are, that, that sometimes are, uh, mysterious. Uh, so yeah, so I, so those are the things about Lorca that I kind of get my, get my juices flowing.
0: Yeah. That that sentence, uh, you said, desire makes us act in ways that are sometimes mysterious. That is also a very apt uh, descriptor of Euripides' plays. Uh, they they share that theme.
1: Oh, for real? Like, yeah, I think that a connection, and also between the connection between uh, that you can't have, uh, you can't explain you can't explain people what people do so easily. Uh, I think that that's mm-hmm. what that is kind of the fire inside of everybody uh that, that they, you can suss it out. But I think what's one of the reasons we return to those stories, right? Like in those plays, is like, you're trying to figure them out and they can that you can't, <laughs> you actually can't, yeah. you can't reduce yeah. them. Right. Like right. You can do all the psychology you want and look up all the articles you want about them. At the end of the day, you're like, but why does this happen? I don't know. <laughs> right, you know, like, why did you, uh, you know, so I think that there's a, it's just a smart thing uh, as, as a dramatist to kind of put us in that place of complete ambiguity about people's desires. Uh, and it's probably, it's also one of the reasons I'm attracted to Tennessee Williams and Sam Shepard, uh, you know, writers who are deeply interested in uh, the mystery of, of the human, uh, psyche and, and, uh, also, you know, both writers, uh, Sam and Tennessee also interested in the symbolism, um, uh, kind of a poetic, the poetic medium of the stage. Um, uh, yeah.
0: Great. That's, that's a, a wonderful note to end on. I've, I've taken up, uh, far too much of your time already, but thanks so much for being on the program.
1: Oh, thank you. What a joy.
0: Yeah. Once again, the book is The Hour of All Things and Other Plays, published by Intellect Books. Everybody, uh, you know, you can't run out to the bookstore and get a copy, but order a copy. This is a a wonderful collection of plays by a wonderful uh, playwright.
1: Thank you, Andy.